One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Thanks to you at home for being here tonight. Tonight, we start with Merrick Garland. It's no surprise that Republicans are not fans of the attorney general. Ever since he arrived at the Justice Department, Republicans have repeatedly accused Garland of weaponizing the DOJ and using it to go after President Biden's so-called political enemies. Here's Garland's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee in October of 2021, where Republican senators had their say about Garland's memo on protecting school board members. Just to be clear, yes, that was a memo on protecting school board members. Take a listen. I'll leave it at this, General Garland. You have weaponized the FBI and the Department of Justice. It's wrong. It is unprecedented, to my knowledge, in the history of this country. And I call on you to resign. This testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. That's not Thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. You should resign in disgrace, Judge. Then, in August of this year, when the FBI executed a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago because a federal judge agreed with the DOJ that evidence of crimes, plural, could potentially be found there, this is what happened. Just shows how bad things have gotten at the FBI and the DOJ. It's, it's all driven by politics now over there. You can see that they've weaponized the Department of Justice. I have filed impeachment articles on Merrick Garland. Joe Biden has turned the Department of Justice and the FBI and the IRS and the federal government into machinery to target their political enemies. He has now used the DOJ to target President Trump uh, and and Chairman Perry under uh, Garland's watch. The DOJ resembles the Gestapo. This is a serious, serious breach of the rule of law, which is why Garland needs to go. And if he won't resign, he ought to be impeached. After that search, Congressman Kevin McCarthy warned, I've seen enough. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. Now, Speaker McCarthy got his wish this week when the House voted to establish a select subcommittee to investigate, and I quote, the weaponization of the federal government. Because in the view of these Republicans, the Department of Justice cannot be trusted. Merrick Garland must resign or he should be impeached because he only goes after Biden's so-called political enemies. Except today, Merrick Garland did something today that doesn't quite fit that narrative. The attorney general announced he had appointed Robert Herr as a special counsel to investigate the classified documents found at President Biden's office and his home. For the second time in less than two months, Garland announced a press conference that extraordinary circumstances called for the appointment of a special counsel. Robert Herr, the former U.S. attorney for Maryland who was appointed by President Trump, said today in a statement, I will conduct the assigned investigation with fair, impartial and dispassionate judgment. I intend to follow the facts swiftly and thoroughly without fear or favor and will honor the trust placed in me to perform this service. The attorney general's announcement came after we learned that another set of classified documents from President Joe Biden's time as vice president, that another set was found in his garage in Wilmington, Delaware. This in addition to the roughly dozen or so classified documents found in early November at Biden's office at a D.C. think tank. Garland said that the White House alerted the Justice Department about the discovery of the documents on December 20th. And the White House then alerted the DOJ this morning of an additional single classified document found in an adjacent room in Biden's Wilmington home. 
Biden reiterated today that he and his office are fully cooperating with the DOJ. That now makes two special counsels conducting investigations into both President Trump and former President President Biden and former President Trump over their handling of classified documents. Setting aside the fact that these circumstances in these two cases are wildly different, the fact of the matter is that both presidents had classified documents in their possession. And Merrick Garland, the AG, has done something that he maybe had to do regarding the politically treacherous territory he now finds himself having to navigate. Hopefully, Robert Hur, the newly appointed special counsel, will conduct himself with that dispassionate judgment and get to the truth here. But in the meantime, Republicans who have been railing against Merrick Garland for roughly two years now, they have a different tune to sing today. Senator Lindsey Graham is happy about it, saying that he appreciate Garland's, appreciates Garland's decision to appoint a special counsel and that it is in the, quote, best interest of the country. But the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, he has mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, throwing President Biden under the microscope was exactly what McCarthy wanted. On the other hand, he wanted to do it his way, with his people, using his committees. Here was the Republican leader this morning before Garland's announcement. We don't think there needs to be a special prosecutor. I think Congress has to investigate this. In the end, it's kind of awkward to claim the federal government is weaponized against you when it is simultaneously announcing a criminal investigation into your political opponent. Joining us now is Charlie Savage, who is covering this story for The New York Times, and Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Obama Justice Department. Thank you both for being here. Um, Charlie, I wonder if you can tell us at all from your reporting the degree to which Garland was making a political calculation, among other things here, the degree to which the pressure that the right wing had been— the campaign, I will say, that they had been waging against Merrick Garland for these two years has had its effect inside the DOJ. Well, he would never admit that that's the case. But of course, he's, not, he's, he's part of the real world. He sees it. He feels it. I was One of the th things that was interesting to learn today was about more recent pressure that's been put on Merrick Garland. Since someone leaked the fact of the first tranche being found to CBS News on Monday, which brought this to public attention, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of calls on Merrick Garland to to do just this, just this, notwithstanding Kevin McCarthy's reluctance. And then someone leaked again to NBC on Wednesday. The second tranche had been found, and the calls only redoubled. And then today he appoints a special counsel. And one of the interesting things he said was the recommendation to him, the decision to appoint a special counsel, had been last week before any of this became public and these calls began. And so if that's right, uh, and I have no reason to doubt that that's right, it means that what looked like a pressure campaign on him was uh, already beside the point. Uh, Matt, you've logged some time at the DOJ. How do you read this decision on the part of Garland and the timetable, as Charlie points out? I think that this is a decision that Merrick Garland basically pressured himself into. I think if you look at the decision in isolation, this isn't one where a special counsel was necessarily warranted or required. I don't think there's any reason to, to read the special counsel regulations as requiring the appointment of a special counsel any time there's an investigation that touches on the president, or, or they could just make, make that clear that that's what is required rather than leave it to the discretion of the attorney general. But I think by appointing an attorney general, to, I'm sorry, by appointing a special counsel to investigate former President Trump, uh, 
and and declaring by by doing that that this is not the kind of investigation that can be handled in the normal course of business by uh, uh, career prosecutors or U and U.S. attorneys in the Department of Justice. He then basically boxed himself in and left himself no choice to but to appoint a special counsel here. If there was a conflict of interest in the Trump case, that conflict is even more acute in a case that involves the sitting president. Um, so I think this is a decision that while the pressure there was a lot of pressure from the outside, really it's a decision that he forced on himself. Matt, you've tweeted that you think uh, special counsel can lead to all sorts of bad places. Can you enumerate what those bad places are and what the potential risk here is? Well, I, I think there are two things. One, I think that when, when attorneys general start to go outside the normal process and, and make a decision that you can't count on the career men and women and the regular order and the, the U.S. attorneys who have been confirmed by the Senate to handle sensitive cases and you have to appoint a special prosecutor for every one of them, uh, you then lead yourself to, to, to appointing special counsels in cases where they're not needed. For example, this one. I don't think one was necessary in the Trump case and I certainly don't think one was necessary here. But as I said, having appointed one in the first case, you're necessarily required one in the second. And then the history of special counsels shows that oftentimes they tend to go in all kinds of places you don't expect. This is different than the situation in the 1990s when there were independent counsels that really weren't accountable to the attorney general. Um, this special counsel will be accountable to uh, directly you know, supervised by the AG. Um, but if he wants to pursue something that isn't necessarily in, under, in his current mandate, there'll be a lot of pressure on the sitting attorney general to do so. And this is a, a, a someone who I have no reason to doubt his integrity, but he was a, a, a political appointee in the previous administration. So it is outsourcing a lot of the eight attorney general's responsibility to someone who is not, you know, has not come up inside the normal regular DOJ order. That, and that's, a, Charlie, to you, the, the fact that Robert Hur, the special counsel here, was a political appointee in the Trump administration. What do we know about him? There seems to, his choice seems to be greeted with some consternation uh, among certain parts of uh, the Biden administration and beyond, given the fact that he is someone that donated to Republican campaigns. As Matt says, he's an appointee and during the Trump administration. What do we know about Robert Hur? Well, he had been a career prosecutor in Maryland. He had worked for Chris Ray, now the FBI director, in the Bush administration when Chris Ray was the head of the criminal division in uh, the George W. Bush uh, Justice Department. He had clerked for then Chief Justice William Rehnquist after law school. So he's clearly a conservative Republican. Uh, and then in the Trump administration, he took on political appointments, first as a very powerful official in the deputy attorney general's office under Rod Rosenstein, and then uh, as the U.S. attorney in Maryland. I think this is part of what's interesting about this is this is Merrick Garland once again reaching to a Trump-appointed current or former U.S. attorney to handle a politically sensitive case uh, or matter as a matter, obviously, of political shielding himself of, of, of bias accusations. He's got a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware handling the Hunter Biden investigation. And before this appointment, he had a different Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Chicago doing the preliminary look at the Biden documents matter. And that stands in sharp contrast to the style of his predecessor, Bill Barr, in the Trump, uh, the, yes, the Trump administration, who, when he had very politically contentious cases, was reaching to fellow Trump-appointed Republican U.S. attorneys to look at things like allegations that the Obama people had un improperly unmasked Trump associates in intelligence reports. Secondly, certainly taking another look at the, the Russia investigation and, and cases that spun off of that, like the matter into Mike Flynn. All of those were 
fellow Republicans looking at that as, as opposed to Merrick Garland, who's looking for the other party to handle these matters. Yeah. And then you can read into that something, right? First of all, the irony that Merrick Garland is to some in in some respect extending an olive branch or trying to convince potentially skeptical Republicans that, in fact, this is legitimate. The DOJ hasn't been weaponized. Everything is fair and above board when it comes to the Justice Department. I mean, that that is ironic, given how Merrick Garland was treated by some of the very same right wing critics here. Matt, do you see a calculation here being made about a potential criminal indictment for Mar-a-Lago, the fact that Merrick Garland is making sure everything is treated in an above-board fashion on the Biden classified documents, perhaps in preparation for something even more controversial as it pertains to Mar-a-Lago? Or am I getting ahead of myself? No, I think that's certainly part of it. I think he's looking at these two cases, and and even though these two cases really, except for the fact that they involve, you know, at, at the first instance, classified documents being in a place they're not uh, supposed to be, in every other way look different. You have one where the, the where President Biden self-reported that these documents were there, turned them over voluntarily, conducted additional searches, and turned them over versus the way the former president handled them. They're obviously very different cases, but I think he looked at it and said and said. To be, uh, if, if one case is headed for indictment, I have to make sure that the decision in the Biden case, which looks to be a routine investigation based on what we know now, there could be facts we don't know. But if the facts that we know uh, turn out to be the only facts, and it's a case that is very unlikely to end in any kind of criminal indictment, uh, I suspect the decision is I have to give the public confidence that both of these cases have been treated fairly. And so I have a spe- two special counsels. One may come up with a recommendation of no indictment, and that will that will give further credibility to the decision possibly to indict former President Trump. Charlie, what does the special counsel do here on a practical level? I mean, we, there there is a lot of obfuscation, which I think is putting it mildly as it pertained to Trump and the Mar-a-Lago document scandal. There doesn't seem to be as much here. There are questions about the timetable and when these announcements were made and when the Biden administration chose to acknowledge that these documents were in the president's possession. But beyond that, the administration has been pretty forthcoming with the DOJ and the National Archives. Do you have a sense of what the special counsel will be investigating now that he has been appointed? Well, he'll have to come in and look at what his predecessor, Mr. Lausch out of Chicago, has already uncovered, what interviews they've already conducted. He'll want to hire some staff and get an office set up just as a routine course of things. Uh, But you're right. This doesn't look like, as far based on what we know now, like there's that much to investigate. And we don't know exactly who packed up those boxes we don't know, did, were those documents accessed? Did anyone go into that closet and rifle through that box or not? They're going to be asking questions like that to the extent that Lausch hasn't already established it. And again, we don't know what his findings are, but there doesn't seem to be nearly the complexity of the Mar-a-Lago documents matter to examine. And so one question in my mind is just how long this could possibly last. Maybe it won't last that long. Maybe it will be a pro forma exercise. We'll see. Charlie Savage, Washington correspondent for The New York Times, and Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Obama Justice Department. Thank you both for joining me tonight, guys. Thank you. The special counsel appointed today is the fourth one in the last six years. So what does that statistic tell us about the state of American democracy? Plus the talented Mr. Santos and the origin of his riches. We will talk to the New York Times reporter who's been doing all the digging, and there is quite a bit to unpack. Stay with us.
When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. From 1973 to 2016, there were just two independent councils appointed to look into the conduct of presidents of the United States, one investigating Richard Nixon and the other Bill Clinton. But now, in just the last six years, we have had not one, not two, not three, but four what we now call special counsel investigations probing the conduct of presidents and the law enforcement officials serving them. It started, of course, with the Mueller investigation into Russia's attempts to interfere with the 2016 election. Then Attorney General William Barr, a.k.a. Bill Barr, gave in to Trump's demands and appointed John Durham to investigate the investigators, a sort of tit-for-tat special counsel, if you will. That investigation ended with more of a whimper than a bang, but at the time, Trump got what he wanted, a second investigation to muddy the waters surrounding his own conduct. Then last year, Trump once again found himself to be the subject of a special counsel investigation after Merrick Garland appointed prosecutor Jack Smith to oversee parallel investigations into Trump's potential mishandling of classified documents and his role in stoking the violence on January 6th and halting the peaceful transfer of power. Now, today, Merrick Garland has appointed yet another special counsel, this time to investigate President Biden's potential mishandling of classified documents. And once again, Republicans are seizing the opportunity to muddy the waters around Donald Trump's potentially criminal conduct. As David Rode writes in his new piece for The New Yorker, for Biden, the new appointment poses more of a political threat than a legal one. Quote, it appears unlikely that President Biden will be prosecuted because it does not seem that he intentionally mishandled documents. But if he isn't, Republicans will argue that Trump should not be charged either. Joining us now is the author himself, David Rode, who covers the Justice Department and serves as the executive editor of TheNewYorker.com. David, thanks for being here. Thank you. So is that the end game here? Not for Merrick Garland, but I mean, when Republicans heard this special counsel announcement, do you think they were like, hey, here's our get, out, get Trump out of jail free card? Politically, yes. And it's not a it's a frustrating situation. Clearly, Trump had more documents. You know, he and his lawyers lied about how many documents they had. They didn't turn them over for months. They defied a subpoena. But you have a situation where it's very difficult politically that, you know, we're going to primarily prosecute Donald Trump. But Joe Biden had some documents next to his Corvette and that's okay. And here we are. I mean, Merrick Garland continually reminds us that he is not a political actor, that it's the DOJ is free from politics. But this seems like an explicitly political move, one that is taking the temperature in the room, as you as if you will, and understands that he I mean, he had to do this for optics, if nothing else. Right. Um, Do you think it was the right decision? 
I do, and I'm a bit of an idealist. And you know, Matt Miller was <laughs> saying that's why earlier, we love you, David. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, he's trying to get people to believe in the Justice Department. That that the the idea, and we've talked about this before, of nonpartisan public service is possible, and that these special prosecutors are going to, you know, follow the facts where they lead and not allow politics to influence, you know their decision about how to deliver justice. So I think he did the right thing here. It's it's a mess. It's unfortunate. But I think this is a way you hope the country can start to normalize. Mm. And maybe some of these people who, you know, the hyperbole of Republicans that you showed at the beginning of the show, that that is just hot air. That's political posturing. And that, you know, Garland is trying to do his best to to get to the facts and and be fair. Yeah, it's a totally inconvenient time for Kevin McCarthy to be launching this inquiry into the weaponization of the federal government when the federal government is doing something that Kevin McCarthy probably would very much likes them doing. Yes. And I, and I think that if, again, looking at the midterms, you know, if anything, it was a vote against this kind of extremism and conspiracy theories. And right now, that's the strange thing about Kevin McCarthy's house. I mean, again, because the numbers, he's got to rely on the Freedom Caucus. But. They have come out, you know, charging with these conspiracy theories that have been unproven over, over, over and over again. I mean, I understand what you're saying about this as a bid to get people back on board with institutional integrity, although I'm skeptical that a lot of people on the right can be convinced of anything right now other than that the government is out to get them. But I do think the use, the frequency of these special counsel appointments, as we outlined at the top of this block, is indicative of a country that no longer can um, referee its own fights, right? Like the partisan divide has become so deep that even Merrick Garland, who's, you know, pretty much in the center is like, I got to, I got to outsource this to someone else because I'm too, I'm too loaded a figure. I'm too, I'm too hot (laughs) for them to handle. That to me does not seem very good that that there are four special counsels in six years compared to where we've been in decades past. I I agree. A lot of that has to do with, I think, Donald Trump's behavior Mm -hmm. in that you, see, you know, Russia find the emails. He's publicly calling on Russia to find the emails. You know, his son and his aides are meeting with, you know, people with ties to the Russian government. So I think the the investigation into Trump and this campaign in Russia was legitimate. And he had that happen. Then there was pressure where Durham is then looking at that Russia investigation. And then to Durham's credit, you know, he's had two low level cases. He lost both of those at trial. Yeah. And he is, I mean, we'll see what he says, you know, in his final report, but Durham has not been a Ken Starr. Ken Starr investigated Clinton that went on for years, and he ends up, you know, going after him for lying about an affair with Monica Lewinsky. So special counsels aren't perfect, but they can work. Robert Mueller, you know, I think generally did a good job. And look, he came out with a conclusion in terms of there was not clear evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and liberals didn't like that. But he did his job as a special counsel. Well, and that was mitigated by the way in which the, his findings were presented that by was. the attorney general, Bill Barr. Right. Yes. I, I, I am strong. It'll be interesting to see how the posture, uh, how Trump's posture uh, is affected by the appointment of this new special counsel, given where he's at on Jack Smith, the special counsel looking into his actions in and around January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago document drama. I mean, on Truth Social, <laughs> this is what Trump had to say about Jack Smith. Jack Smith for some reason, question mark, is a Trump-hating thug whose wife is a serial and open Trump-hater whose friends and other family members are even worse. I mean, the man has not... It's it's maybe worse than the behavior during the Mueller investigation. It is immediately personal. It is immediately baseless. It is immediately just a new level of low in terms of former presidents and their public narratives. 
I don't think this is working politically. We saw that in the 2020. We saw that in the 2022 midterms. He's exaggerating. He's lying. It's hyperbole. It's nasty. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I think it's and I think it's exhausting independents and moderate Republicans. I could be wrong. And the most important thing is to sort of defeat Donald Trump politically. That is sort of slowly happening. And then he shouldn't he should be careful because the more important investigation in terms of, you know, the gravity of what has been alleged is January 6th. There are new subpoenas out put out by Jack Smith, the special counsel there, looking at fundraising. And did the Trump campaign know that it's mostly, you know, claiming that these machines had secretly changed votes? And it's a subpoena looking for information about did they know that that was all bogus? Those were fake claims that votes had been stolen by Dominion machines. And essentially, were they committing fraud by raising all this money to, you know, stop the steal? That's very serious stuff. There's no indication that that, you know, there's overwhelming evidence of that yet. And, And frankly, if Trump is going to be prosecuted for anything, it should be January, January 6th. 6th. Yes, Unprecedented. The- a president doing this. No other president should do it again. You, you want to deter that kind of behavior. It's, it's an astonishing and a historic crime if there's clear evidence. Of uh, it. You know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with Mar-a-Lago in the context of all this, whether the appointment of uh, uh, the new special counsel to examine Biden's retention of documents in any way affects what happens in Mar-a-Lago. All I do know is that January 6th and a potential indictment seems a long way away. David Rode, executive editor of the New Yorker.com. It's great to see you, David. Thank you. Still to come tonight, the seditious conspiracy trial of members of the Proud Boys got underway today with prosecutors arguing that the Proud Boys were emboldened by the words of former President Trump. The defense team, meanwhile, argued something very different. We'll bring you the latest from that courtroom. Plus, embattled Republican freshman Congressman George Santos, George Santos, somehow, somehow, had $700,000 to lend his campaign. But where did that money come from? We have some new reporting for you. That's next. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Newly elected New York Congressman George Santos's resume was filled with all sorts of things that were not real. There were the two colleges he did not actually graduate from and the multiple financial sector jobs he did not actually have. But notably absent from Santos's resume was his actual most recent job. Right before you decided to go into politics, what were you doing? Well, I still actually, up until August 1st, uh, when I initiated my leave of absence, 
I'm the regional director for Harbor City Capital. We're a uh, fixed income shop. We are um, top, uh, we're within the Fortune 500 private equity firms globally. Um, I manage all of our fixed income assets with arbitrage here in New York. I am actually Harbor City Capital um, head guy for New York City. Harbor City Capital has never been listed in the Fortune 500. But a few months after that interview, the company did get some recognition in the form of a complaint filed against it by the SEC. The SEC alleges that Harbor City Capital was a fraudulent Ponzi scheme that victimized hundreds of investors across the United States. Despite talking himself up as the head guy for New York City at this alleged Ponzi scheme, George Santos claims that he was as distraught and disturbed as everyone else to learn about the allegations against Harbor City Capital. Santos himself was not named in that SEC complaint and has, again, denied any knowledge of malfeasance at the firm. Now, in the years directly after this, with a resume filled with fake jobs he did not actually have and an alleged Ponzi scheme, George Santos somehow went from earning a reported $55,000 a year to earning an annual salary of $750,000 a year plus dividends. Enough money that he had the ability to lend his campaign more than $700,000. So the question is, where did George Santos get all that money? Weeks after the SEC complaint against Harbor City Capital, Santos incorporated a new organization in Florida called the DeVolder Organization. DeVolder is his mother's maiden name. In Santos' own words, DeVolder was an effort to help, quote, all the people who were left adrift at Harbor City Capital. It's unclear if he included himself in that group. On his campaign's financial disclosure, Santos lists DeVolder as the source of the bulk of his recent financial windfall. But here's the thing. We really have no idea what DeVolder actually does. We know money came out of DeVolder, but we don't know how money got in there to begin with. And at the same time, thanks to the great reporting out of The New York Times today, we know that a super PAC called Redstone Strategies, which claimed to have the singular purpose of electing George Santos, that super PAC was raising money, but did not appear to be spending it. The fact, in fact, the FEC has no record of Redstone Strategies at all, and there do not appear to be any records documenting its donors or its contributors or its spending. The New York Times spoke with a donor who gave $25,000 to Redstone Strategies last year for what he was told would be a large ad buy for Mr. Santos. The Times found no record of Redstone making any ad buys on Santos's behalf. Now, Redstone claimed to have raised at least $800,000, which is just slightly more than what Santos personally lent his campaign. And the source of Santos's wealth was, again, that mystery company, DeVolder. So to recap, one company, Redstone, is hauling in some serious cash, and we don't know where it ultimately went. And another company, DeVolder, is flush with cash, and we don't know where it came from. And the amount of money we're talking about here coming in and going out is almost the same. Now, those numbers could be coincidental. Maybe this is all just Santos's team not filing paperwork correctly. Who knows? But check this out. As of last month, both Santos's company, DeVolder, and Redstone Strategies list the same penthouse apartment of a Florida condo as their address. Both companies have the same address. Voter registration records show that address is the home of one Jason Benoit, one of Santos's former colleagues at the alleged Ponzi scheme, Harbor City Capital. There is a lot to unpack here. Joining us now is Alexandra Berzon, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and one of the New York Times 
reporters behind today's story. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. What an interesting series of facts. Do you see a connection between Devolder and Redstone the way I see a connection between Devolder and Redstone? Well, Devolder organization um, is actually a manager in Redstone Strategies LLC. Now, Redstone Strategies LLC, as you mentioned, is this Florida company that he has a partner in. Um, So it seems to be that is a clear Santos connection. Now, there's this thing called Redstone Strategies uh, that was also raising money um, during 2022. And they were going out to donors and they were saying, look, we want to raise all this money to do this big media buy. We're going to buy all this advertising and we need $1.5 million. And they went out to a lot of these donors had already maxed out. They'd given the maximum amount they were allowed to give. And they went to them and they said, can you give more? And and in in one case, actually, Santos was actually seemed to be um, on the phone or seemed to be the person who was directly soliciting the donor, which um, is another potential um, issue in terms of um, some of the campaign finance implications of this, um, depending on what they were doing. But one of the things is that they, we were not able to find any records of any actual advertising spending. So um, it is, you know, we're not completely certain whether this Redstone Strategies raising the money is the same Redstone Strategies LLC that DeVolder um, is a partner in. Um, but it's certainly there. There are these um, potential connections and a, and a lot of kind of mystery surrounding the um, the finances for sure. Who is giving money? I mean, I know you can't divulge your sources, but do we have any idea about the sales pitch George Santos was making here? I mean, these are big quantities of money, and and apparently nobody at the time was asking for proof that the money was spent on the thing that they thought it was going to be spent on. Yeah, we have seen the sales pitch and it basically um, says we are Redstone Strategies where um, the one of the most notable things about it is it says we have the singular purpose of electing George Santos. Now, you're allowed to raise unlimited amount of money if you are um, a, a pack, a super pack, and but you, there's a certain... Um, things that you still have to do in order to do that. One, you have to register with the FEC, which they do not appear to have done. And you have to disclose the donors, which they do not appear to have done. If you are, in fact, have this singular purpose. They were also saying they were a 501c4, which is like a social welfare organization, which is not supposed to have the sole purpose of having this, um, of electing a particular person into office. The other thing is you're not supposed to coordinate with the candidate, which um, it clearly appears that Santos had some involvement in raising the money um, for Redstone Strategies. The other thing is that you need to spend the money on the actual purpose. So if you're saying that you're going to um, make ad buys and do all this to elect the person, you should be doing that. And as I mentioned, we have not found records that they were actually doing any um, advertising buying as they had said they were going to. It really seems like this is a matter for the FEC and potentially, I know we know the New York AG is looking into this. There are a lot of question marks about this influx and outflow of money, a lot of which ended up being used on George Santos's personal expenses. Alexandra Burson, investigative reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for your time and your reporting. Thanks so much. We have still more to come tonight. The Proud Boys went to court today. We'll learn what happened in their trial for seditious conspiracy on January 6th. And we'll take a trip to the least magical place on earth, DeSantis World, where for the Florida governor, the cruelty is the point. New video surfaces of arrests last summer orchestrated to make the governor look tough. 
and it's coming up. Today, the government made opening statements in the high-profile seditious conspiracy case against five prominent Proud Boys for their actions in the Capitol attack. Prosecutors cited incriminating text messages and voice memos from the Proud Boys that they sent each other before, during, and after the riot. Quote, the exclusive chat that the crux of the government's argument appears to rely upon was a private telegram group for a special Proud Boy chapter called the Ministry of Self-Defense. In that chat, Enrique Tarrio, then a leader of the far-right group, appears to take credit for the Capitol riot. He wrote, make no mistake, we did this. Okay. Another of the Proud Boys on trial, Ethan Nordine, also posted a video celebrating the attack. He said, I was part of the effing storming the capital of the most powerful country in the effing world. A third gang member, Zachary Rell, added, I'm proud as F at what we accomplished yesterday. I mean, okay. And also they recorded their conference calls. Oof. Taken together, the videos, the text, and the audio, all of that is part of the evidence jurors will now consider in deciding whether these five defendants are guilty of conspiring to prevent the peaceful transition of presidential power. Meanwhile, inside the courtroom, the Proud Boys, they have their own plan. Joining us now to tell us what that is is Tess Owen, senior reporter for Vice News. She was inside that courtroom all day watching this trial unfold. Tess, judging by your Twitter uh, feed today, it was an interesting time in that courtroom. Can you tell us how the defense is mounting its case? I mean, specifically, Dominic Pozzola, one of the Proud Boys, his lawyer sounded like he had an interesting argument to, to make in terms of defending his client. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and yes, indeed. So, I mean, as you said, we've got, we've got five defendants, each with their own legal team. And, you know, as a result, you know, it's a crowded courtroom and there are some real characters in the mix, which, you know, at points makes for sort of entertaining viewing. But what's also sort of coming out is a sort of patchwork of legal arguments that they're using to defend their individual clients. So, you know, we have... We have Tario's lawyer, for example, Enrique Tario, who's trying to say that his his client is being scapegoated by the government. And, you know, they're just going after him because he's an easy target and because they can't really go after the big whale, which is Donald Trump. Or they're saying that, you know, um, they're trying to use the old line that, you know, the Proud Boys are just a drinking club. They're trying to downplay the political violence aspect of things and so on. There's one, uh, Dominic Pozzola's lawyer, who had some sort of more bizarre arguments, I'd say, um, try to say that the riot was essentially a six hour inconvenience for Congress and that the, you know, the halls of Congress are, are, are often so crowded and noisy that it's not really much of a difference than, than usual. Um, but to me, I think the biggest asset for defense lawyers is what they say will be testimony from government informants. And these government informants, they say, had infiltrated the Proud Boys prior to January 6th, uh, were privy to some of their chats, marched with them on the day. And they say that these, these government informants will claim that there was no plan, that this was a spontaneous eruption of violence. Now, it depends how these testimonies will hold up under cross-examination, what chats they were actually privy to. Um, but to me, anyway, this is a very interesting nugget that the defense has in their in their court. I, I just want to for for people who missed what you said, which is very key. One of the Proud Boys lawyers is saying that the riot on the Capitol was effectively a six hour inconvenience as far as the work of Congress. I think you also tweeted that 
when they showed the clip of Pozzola smashing one of the windows at the Capitol, he said it wasn't as bad as the still from the video suggests. Also, the damage to the property wasn't that bad because the windows don't look expensive, according to the lawyer. These were not thousand dollar windows. Um, Tess, what was the reaction in the courtroom when that that argument was made? I mean, there were giggles, for sure. Um, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine that, you know, he was sort of replaying these videos, um, these, you know, kind of iconic videos we've seen a million times now of Pozzola using this stolen riot shield to sort of to, 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 to smash the window. And this was the first breach of the Capitol. And, you know, it doesn't look any better the third or fourth or fifth time we've seen it. So it was kind of Hard to understand exactly what this lawyer's line of thinking was. He also played repeatedly the video of Pozzola smoking a cigar inside the Capitol, saying um, something like, you know, we took the mother effing uh, 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 thing and sort of claiming victory for it. And he said this is going to exonerate um, Pozzola because he sort of defines what victory means for him in that moment. And victory means just standing in the Capitol. So... You know, th th some lawyers' arguments seem to be more tenuous than others. Some seem to be, you know, quite strong. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this all shakes out in the coming weeks. Well, you mentioned that the government, uh, the, def the, pro the defense is going to be using some government informants who are with the Proud Boys. We also know the government is going to have other Proud Boys test against, testify against the, the Proud Boys on trial. And that sounds like it will certainly be interesting. Do you, do you have any I intel on what that, that you know, prosecutorial uh, evidence might look like? So it seems to me that the government's case is going to come down to two, to two main things. First is the testimony from those five Proud Boys, uh, one of who is particularly important. His name is Jeremy Bertino. He was a pretty prominent Proud Boy, and he's already pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy. So he's a major witness in this case. Um, the other part is what you mentioned earlier, these, um, these telegram, encrypted telegram chats and videos and audio. And this was from a special chapter that Tario formed in late December 2020 called the Ministry of Self-Defense. And what the purpose of this group was for will kind of be the, the lawyers will be arguing over this in the coming weeks. Um, the government says that this was was to where they plotted their their conspiracy and that these messages we've seen kind of snippets of in court documents, but that in full we'll see the you know what happened before, what happened during, and what they were saying after. That these will kind of expose their plot. So I think these are two major pieces of evidence that the government's going to use to build their case. We'll be watching. Tess Owen, senior reporter for Vice News. Thanks, Tess. We'll be Thank right back. Thank you so back. much for having me. Thank you. Back in August of last year, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a press conference to show everyone that he meant business when it came to election security by announcing that his newly formed election police had just arrested 20 former felons for alleged voter fraud. In a new video published today by The Guardian newspaper, body cam footage of officers making arrests in Miami-Dade County reveals the officers remarking on how the operation to arrest at least some of the ex-felons, how that operation came together, just ahead of Governor DeSantis', Governor DeSantis's uh, performative press conference. One saying he was given three or four hours to do a three-county operation. Many of those arrested were understandably confused when officers showed up at their front doors. They believed they had the right to vote after Florida voters overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment to restore the voting rights of convicted felons in 2018. The amendment, however, made exceptions for those convicted of murder or felony sex offenses. But for those who were arrested, their ineligibility was not made clear to them. Even more chilling, the video published today shows heavily armed officers arresting two men. 
You can see in this video here, one man was forced out of his home only in his underwear. He walked out of the front door to face officers on the scene holding semi-automatic weapons and handguns. Another man was handcuffed in his underwear by armed officers after being awoken from sleep. The two men in these videos, Ronald Miller and Robert Wood, had their cases dismissed last year, as was a third last month. But state prosecutors plan to appeal those rulings. Regardless of whether any of those cases will ultimately stick, Governor DeSantis got what he wanted out of the whole situation, namely confusion and fear for ex-felons who might want to vote. And of course, a press conference. That is it for us tonight. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 